Hello and welcome to our podcast for American Writers One, Beginnings to 1865. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host, and today we're discussing the poems of Emily Dickinson. This is the first of two conversations this week, uh, so let's meet the rest of the panel. Uh, folks, when you introduce yourself, please tell us your name, your major, and then my stupid question today is the most poetic object in nature. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, are there any objects in nature about which you would love to write a poem or that you like to read poems about objects in nature? Or if you, you know, something, take it however you'd like it to go. Um, Maddie, why don't you go first? Uh, hi, I'm Maddie. Um, I am a creative writing major and the most poetic object. Um, trees. I do like yes. trees. Yes. Yeah, I've written some poems about trees. I've read some poems about trees. I think they're poetic. I think they're very wise. Wise. Good word. Good word. All right, Heather, why don't you go next? Hi, my name is Heather. I am a biology major. Um, something I guess I find poetic in nature and writing would probably be anything about animals. Yeah. Because I feel like those poems turn out sort of cute, and upbeat, and happy. Yes. Are you thinking of anything in particular or any, any animal that's like the happiest animal? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> probably a cat. I really like cats. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cat poems. <laughs> cat poems at the top of my head, but I've got lots of dog poems that I can think of, right? All right, Bailey, introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Bailey. I'm an English and public relations double major. And I think the most poetic object would probably be the stars. <gasps> Good one. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. They are majestic and mis like mysterious. <laughs> yes, very. Yes. Okay. I'm Dr. Tippin. My major is English. And I think the most poetic object in nature, I was going to say trees. That was going to be my first one too. Uh, stars is so good. And I wish I had said stars. Um, but I think that I'm going to go with flowers. I think flowers um, or bees. And there's lots of bee poems in Emily Dickinson. So we'll catch up with those in a little bit. Okay, great. Well, let's dig in. So we're talking about Emily Dickinson this week, and I would love to hear from you all, and I'll probably ask this question again on Wednesday um, with the second group, like, and probably on Friday again. <laughs> what are some things that you knew about Emily Dickinson before reading this week? Like, what's sort of her reputation in your mind and your experience? Um, all I could think about is my English teacher always talking about how she like was holed up in her house all the time. She like yeah. never left. Yeah, that is that is part of the story. Did you also hear the part about her being dressed in white all the time? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's sort of true. There's some truth to it. I think that um, I think that we maybe put more emphasis on that than we need to. Uh, often I think about like, what would a 1860s woman be doing if she wasn't in her home? Where do, we, where do we think she was supposed to be? Where was she supposed to go? Like, what are, what do we want? And so what if she wore white? Who cares? You know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, thank you, Heather. How about some others? Maddie, do you have a picture in your mind of what Emily Dickinson is like before? Uh, I know she struggled with a lot of like mental illnesses like depression so that like is reflected in her poetry that's I don't know too much about her 
Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, I think we can probably point to some pieces, uh, some poems, especially where there's a sense of uh, maybe hopelessness or a sense of, of dread. Um, we're going to talk about death in a little bit. There's kind of a, a death fixation that I think a lot of people get out of these poems. Yeah. Bailey, have you got anything that you were thinking of? Uh, yeah, other than her not liking to leave her house, I know there was a lot of speculation about her sexuality because she never married. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, and I think that's coming more and more. I, I mean, if you, my recommendation was to watch the Dickinson show on Apple Plus. Did either, did any of you watch that show? No, no. It, it focuses a lot on that particular question of her sexuality. Um, and uh, that it might have been more expansive than we think. Um, and her ability to marry was really not her choice as much as her parents, according to this kind of theory that's put forth in this show. I don't, I'm not sure what sort of sources they <laughs> looked at to write that show, but it kind of makes sense to me in terms of what I know about sort of 1860s gender expectations and, and family structures and things like that. Okay, great. Here's some of the things that my high school teacher told me um, that all the poems can be sung to the theme of Gilligan's Island. I think students <laughs> have also told me that Pokemon theme song works, that there's like a very specific rhythm um, that once you've found it in one poem, it's in all the poems. Um, so there's like a, there's like a, a very specific pattern. Um, and uh, one thing that I think we were told is that she was never published and never wanted to be published. And we can talk about that more on Friday. We're going to read a really interesting article about um, kind of her publication history, but I don't think that's very true at all, right? She had a, a, an amazingly rich correspondence with lots of people. She wrote lots and lots of letters um, and had some intense relationships through the mail. <laughs> people came to her also, right? It's not so weird that she didn't leave her house because people came to her um, because of her father standing in their community. Uh, she was published formally. She did publish poems. She sent them to um, a publication called The Drumbeat that was specifically for fundraising for the Union side of the Civil War. Uh, she was also published, we would call it informally, and we can talk more about that as the week goes on. Uh, but she had lots of readers. They just weren't like book readers. Do you know what I mean? She, she selected who she wanted to read her poetry. And I think that's something we don't really think about very much. Um, and she might not have been a literary celebrity in her time, but she was definitely well connected to them. Uh, so like Emerson and Thoreau, people that we've kind of talked about already, they're, they're near her in that sort of New England, Massachusetts area. And she has a lot of, of correspondence with them. So uh, I think what I hope we can do over the week is sort of dispel some of these misconceptions maybe about what she is like. What do you think about that? Does that kind of change anything for you? To, to know these other things about her? I didn't know about her sexuality. I knew, like yeah. I heard that um, from an English teacher that she did love somebody, but I feel like I was told that that person died or something yeah. of the sort, which is why she has a fixation on death. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's also kind of a suggestion that if she did love someone, it was in a distantly, in a distant kind of letter writing way and not yeah. a, a physical sort of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Heather, that's that's kind of new information. Anything else? Somebody else started to talk. Who was that? Oh, it was me. Hi, Bailey. Uh, what are you thinking? I was, I just like know that the only relationship I knew Emily Dickinson had was with her sister. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So learning that she wasn't quite so isolated, it's just like nice to know because that's kind of the picture you have of her is that she only really talked to her sister, spent all her time alone. Yeah, sister or sister-in-law. I think maybe sister-in-law, her brother. I don't remember if she had a sister. She definitely had a brother and her brother was married to her best friend and he also had an affair with someone else. Um, and that those were all important moments in her life. So yeah, uh, thinking that she had like a very small family, um, that's a different picture than having someone with a lot of relationships outside of the family. Yes. Okay. The last thing that I want to talk about before I get into your questions is kind of about the way things are titled and labeled. And I think that's worth exploring a little bit. Uh, so she published these herself in what are called fascicles, which is a silly way of describing like booklets that she would uh, write her poems and kind of get them the way she wanted to. And then when they were done, quote unquote, she would write them down in a little bound notebook. Um, and those were called fascicles. And our headnote describes it as a kind of self-publication, a private kind of self-publication. So what do you think about that? Do you, can you see their argument there that like writing it down in a little booklet is a kind of publication? Or do you think maybe, no, that's not publication. Publication is something else. I feel like maybe for her time, yeah, yeah. it can be considered like self-publication. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in like our day and age. Yeah, Heather, what would be the sort of bar for today to be called self-publication? like somebody going out and actually having their like books or poems sold yeah. to, like other people and a ma- like a mass majority of people. Yeah, I think we think of that there like it needs to you need to buy it. Someone needs to buy it and then it's published. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How about some other ideas? Do you think this sort of writing it down for yourself in its final version is a kind of publication? It could be. Yeah, Maddie. Like- I guess like self-publication and then publication could be two different things mm-hmm. and then like self-publicize like maybe you just just have it or show it to your family. Yeah and I think the evidence points to that 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 putting them in these fascicles was one way of saying this poem is done it's the way I want it to be and that's sort of a final version um, and then also like that, that it's, it's done for me. So before it gets in the fascicle, she's sending poems to people in letters. She's showing them things in process. Uh, she's getting feedback on her work from other writers. So this kind of final version, uh, I think is, is kind of an interesting way to think about it. Um, so these are these clean copies. They're bound into 40 booklets. Uh, she rarely used official titles. So she's not like giving her poems titles. Um, usually. So when we describe the poems as scholars, we often refer to them by a number or by the first line. Um, So some of you did this in your discussion post when you put the question up, you're like, it's the poem that starts, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And that is very helpful. Um, In the book, we have two sets of numbers. And uh, you may have noticed that there's like a number and then in Uh, brackets, there's FR and another number. And so these are two scholars, Thomas Johnson and R.W. Franklin, who have gone through all of her poems and tried to put them in the order that they were composed. Uh, And so that's where the two numbers come from. So it's either, I'm looking at a page where it's either the 84th poem that she wrote, or it's the 121st poem that she wrote. 
um, it's either 185 or it's 202. So <laughs> uh, I don't know. Tell me what you think about this numbering system. Does it matter to you in what order things were written? Does it make a difference in how you read the poem? I think it like depends on like what time in her life she wrote it. Mm. But mm -hmm. you can also think of like, I, I know some of the poems like uh, what I read before, like she doesn't use like a lot of, like she does use gender, but her poems come from a perspective of more of like the brain. So like anyone can relate to it in a way, some of them. And mm -hmm. so I feel like if you knew where she was coming from, it would have a different meaning if you would just like, just read it without a title and see how it felt towards you. Yeah, I can agree with that. I feel like we want to connect her poems to her biography. And so having them in order lets us do that to say what happened to her that made her write this poem. That's a good idea. I think there's there's legs to that. What else do you think? Any other reason? Or do you want to say like, no, it does not matter. I'm going to read it no matter what. Biography be damned. I don't think it really matters what order yeah. it's read in. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in what uh, what Maddie said just a minute ago too about them being sort of brain poems, right? They kind of come out of uh, a thought that you could have at any time, anywhere. They're kind of timeless in that way, as opposed to a poem like um, like like Whitman's Beat Beat Drums. If you didn't know that was a Civil War poem, it wouldn't make much sense to you, right? You kind of need to know that context, uh, but maybe not so much with a poem like um, I Heard a Fly by Buzz When I Died. That kind of could be anywhere, anytime, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into your questions. So Heather asked a question about Dickinson versus her contemporaries. Uh, so Heather, tell us a little bit about what you were thinking of and if you have a sense of how she might be different. Um, so like some of the similarities I was thinking about were um, how a lot of the way she writes is like, you know, I just lost it in my head. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> <All right. laughs> so, uh, she, like other people, sort of write shorter rather than longer. Mm -hmm. But some differences is what she wrote about. Like she wrote a lot about uh, spirituality, uh, nature, and art. Okay. As like other contemporaries in that time were just writing about like whatever, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Um, the way that she like her vocabulary in her poems are uh, concise and less sentimental mm -hmm. when she describes things. So if one example I'd like pulled up, um, I pulled this one up on online because I, I couldn't find it, but um, okay, she was talking about rafter of satin and roof of stone mm -hmm. um, to describe a grave. Oh yeah, uh-huh, yeah, we have that one in our, our list for today. Yes, I was trying to look for it, but I couldn't find it when I was looking Yes, and now I don't remember which number it is either. Do any of you have it handy? Um, no, I don't either. There's so many. <laughs> she talks a lot about death, so there's a lot of graves. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. I'm with you, though. All right, so that's kind of new. That's different from her contemporaries being a little more... Um, yeah, like instead of saying straight out, I'm writing a poem about a grave, she makes sort of a metaphorical conceit that eventually we'll figure out it's a grave, but only if we're really good readers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I have an example to talk about in just a minute, but off the top of your head, Haley, um, sorry, Bailey, <laughs> Bailey, do you have any sense of how these poems might be different from other things that you're familiar with from the time? Um, I think a lot of Dickinson's poems are soft. They have like a more kind of melancholy, kind of domestic feel to them. Yeah. Like they're comforting almost in a way where I feel like other authors at the time kind of went into like heavier topics. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good description of like versus Walt Whitman. So Whitman is writing these poems about like the Bro crossing Brooklyn Ferry and all of time and space are all one thing. And they're like big sweeping poems about what is democracy and who are we? And she's like, a bird was on my sidewalk today. <laughs> right? <laughs> that, may be, that may be a really big difference between those two. Maddie, do you have any ideas? I would just have to go back to like the whole brain poem. Yeah. Um, just like those thoughts that you would have, like uh, like the certain slant of light poem, just like to think of that, um, like in winter, like everyone has had that thought, I'm sure. I mean, at least I have. Mm -hmm. So I guess like her poetry is like relatable to more people. That makes sense to me, right? A kind, that, that small domestic uh nature-centered kind of relatability that makes it easier to access. I'm with you and I think that's really interesting compared to I think it was Heather's answer that like it's both domestic and easy to access and also a little bit like a riddle that's hidden from you and and maybe it's both at the same time. Okay so I have here on the screen and I will share this with everyone in our class um, two people writing at the same time. The left side is October or Indian summer or 130 or 122. Um, <laughs> that is a, a Dickinson poem. And then on the right is a contemporary uh, poet whose name is Rose Cook. Um, this is in your anthology on page 1387 if you wanna find it. And they're both kind of about fall. They're about that moment when fall ends and or like summer ends and fall is beginning. Um, let's maybe just read the first, uh, my phone is not on silent either, the first uh, stanza of each poem. Um, so can I ask somebody to pick the Dickinson poem? Will someone read the first stanza just till that first break? Heather, this is your question. Can I pick you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. These are the days when birds come back a very few, a bird or two, to take a backward look. Good job. Okay, and then uh, Bailey, will you read the first stanza of Rose Cook's poem? Go dead summer o'er the seas away, autumn at her vespers now will kneel and pray, sunlit vapors on the mountains stray, red grows the round moon, summer goes away. Yes, okay, so just from that little bit, what do you see that is similar? Let's start with similarities first. What seems to be like the relationship between these two kinds of writers? Any thoughts? They both talk about nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They both kind of have a rhythm. These are the days when birds come back go dead summer or the seas, you know, it's, there's like a, it's not exactly the same. It's not the same <laughs> rhythm, but there is a rhythmness to them. I'm noticing there's a lot of rhyming on the Rose Cook side and no rhyming on the Dickinson side. 
Yeah, that's a difference. Uh, sorry, I asked for similarities first. Um, now go into differences. <laughs> what, what feels different about these two poems? Any other differences you notice? Maybe differences in tone. No. This probably is gonna sound really weird, but back. in the Dickinson poem, it seems more, I'm just gonna say black and white while the Rose Cook poem seems more colorful, like just using uh -huh. the like red grows the round moon. Uh -huh. I'm not sure what that might mean, but okay. it was a thought. <laughs> Okay, I do have, you know, the one colorful phrase in the October poem is, um, these are the days when skies resume the old, old sophistries of June, a blue and gold mistake, uh, that the sky is a mistake. I don't know what that means, but I do know that it's blue and gold. I, I think what she's saying is like those, uh, she calls it Indian summer in another version. So that's like the day it's fall, but it feels like summer outside. And I think if I looked out my window today and did not actually go outside, it looks a little summery right now with the blue sun, right? The blue sky. Uh, so there's there's a little bit more of that um, mystery happening. I see what you mean though about the colorfulness because in the Rose Cook poem, there's the red moon, there's green grass, there's uh, the red embers of the ashes of summer. Um, there's uh, the south wind, there's perfumed pine leaves. There's a lot of those like images happening over there versus maybe like a feeling on the Dickinson side. Would you agree with that maybe? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, they do both have like this O thing, like, oh, fraud that cannot cheat the bee. Oh, sacrament of summer days. Oh, last communion in the haze, right? There's a lot of that going on that's kind of similar. So on the one hand, I would say, yeah, she's different. She's different from other people, but she's not like crazy different. Compare these two poems to like a Whitman poem and who's the crazier one? Who's more different? Who's the outlier? Whitman, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Whitman is the outlier. He's the one who's not writing in stanzas. He's not writing with a particular uh, rhyme scheme. He's not writing with a particular rhythm most of the time. Uh, he's kind of like just free forming it, doing what he wants. So if there's a lesson to be learned here, I think that she is different, but maybe not as different as she could have been. Does that help? I mean, does that make any sense to you? Heather, you kind of had that question to begin with. So what do you, what, what's sort of your summary at the end? Why does it matter whether or not she's different from others? I feel like that's what makes her like stand out and what yeah. made people like her poems so much. Yeah. Like Walt Whitman is famous for being, you know, Walt Whitman being very different yeah. and she's sort of the like complete opposite of him, which is what made her stand out for her time period. Yeah, I agree with that. I can see that. Any other thoughts? Like what, what about the sort of being not, not as crazy different as you imagined? Is there anything to take away from that? Thinking about Whitman describing himself as a man who's never seen a book before. And I think, I think it's interesting to, to let her be like a person who's seen a book and that she is sort of responding to the world around her. She's just gonna do it a slightly differently, right? A little bit to the side. 
Okay, great. Let's go into some more nature poems. Nature poems. Uh, Maddie, I believe this is your question. You're kind of thinking about natural imagery. In imagery. Wow. Okay, natural <laughs> imagery. Maybe ask your question again, Maddie. What are you thinking about? Um, so I, I, I remember this poem from high school. Yeah. And, uh, we talked about like the natural imagery in this poem and I thought it was just like really interesting how she uses like that when you see that like the rays of sunlight coming through like the wood and in some or sorry in winter and it's just kind of depressing because it's such like a, a joyous uh light but in such a very cold um for lack of a better word dead part of uh the year well I guess it is a dead part of the year yeah yeah like it's just uh like I she uses like very heavy words like oppresses and despair and shadows and it just like it shows like um kind of just like a depressing feeling and a very like it seems like like the the imagery of like death just is kind of like over the narrator of this poem yeah 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 you pointed out all of them right the uh, the the light oppresses um there's heavenly hurt there's the seal despair there's an imperial affliction uh <laughs> there's a lot of like feelings of pain in yeah. this poem but it doesn't like but that's not the only feeling that's there either right there's also kind of awe to it maybe yeah, yeah. I'm interested in the line that you pointed out too. Uh, when it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, it's like the distance on the look of death. What does that mean? The landscape listens. I think, like from the like, previous research, it just uh, it's like kind of like that distance between life and death. Mm -hmm. So it's like death is calling but it's not there yet. And it's like, there is a very large or yeah, like large distance or like gap between those. And like, you go through those ups and downs of life, I guess. Yeah, I'm with you. And nature is there with you mm -hmm. while you do that. Heather, what do you think about the, the nature imagery in this poem? Um, first off, I really like it. I'm like reading it over again. Um, just the whole, like, like she said, the whole, like, feeling of reading this poem makes you feel depressed because of all the imagery that she uses, because, like, when I think of, like, um, let me pull it up to a sentence, like, when you think of, um, the heavenly hurt, it yeah. gives us, we can find no scar, makes me feel like, you know, everybody's upset, but at the same time, there's nothing to be upset about. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, and if there's no better description of seasonal depression, I don't know what it is, right? <laughs> like, I feel bad and I can't figure out why. <laughs> it just makes people sad, but at the same time, like. Yeah, what is there to be sad about? It's summer spring again soon, so we shouldn't be feeling this way. <laughs> I see that. I think I know what you mean. Uh, but I think, you know, maybe putting that together, uh, nature is where our feelings are. Like nature, or maybe nature reflects our feelings, or we can talk about our internal feelings by looking at nature. Is that a, does that make sense? Yeah. As an explanation? Yeah. Bailey, what do you think? 
Well, in my notes that I took last night when I was reading for this poem, I put melancholy, and that's really, that I think sums it up. It feels very cold, I suppose, like reading it, it's just like, it gives me like a cold feeling. I don't know if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. 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 I agree with you too. Uh, although somewhere in the poem though, there's a little bit of this feeling of like, I don't know if you get this feeling ever uh, in your own kind of experience, but you see something beautiful in something cold and dark and scary. And I wonder if I, I can kind of feel that in the poem too. So she's she's looking at this slant of light and it's a beautiful slant of light. And it reminds her of church and there's something beautiful about that um even though it does make me sad i i wonder if there's also a beauty in it as well Mm. i picked out some other nature poems but is there another one uh, heather or bailey that you like that sort of has a nature aspect that ask you know could get at the same question I was gonna say the bird one, like where the bird came down for the walk, but I don't know if that's really naturey. Yes, it is. Are birds natural or not? <laughs> uh, what number is that? Three, uh, that is three twenty-eight or three fifty-nine. Three twenty-eight. Okay, so that's on our page fourteen eighty. Um, I'll read it, and then we can kind of talk about it a little bit more. So a bird came down the walk. This is the one I like too. Uh, he did not know I saw. He bit an angleworm in halves and ate the fellow raw. And then he drank a dew from a convenient grass. And then he hopped sidewise to the wall to let a beetle pass. He glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all around. They looked like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head like one in danger, cautious. I offered him a crumb and he unrolled his feathers and rode him softer home. Oh, and then wrote, okay, hold on. <laughs> uh, like one, okay. See, this enjambment is killing me. He stirred his velvet head. I'm trying to read it as a sentence. He stirred his velvet head like one in danger. Cautious, I offered him a crumb, and he unrolled his feathers and rode him softer home than oars divide the ocean, too silver for a scene. Or butterflies, off banks of noon, leap plashless as they swim. Okay, sentences are hard. Uh, I wonder if you're noticing maybe the lack of punctuation, generally speaking, or like the non-standard punctuation and how that makes it really flipping hard to read it as a sentence. Okay, so tell me what's cool about nature in this poem. Um, Heather, did you pick this one? Yes, I did. Okay, I forgot already. Tell me what what you think is interesting about this poem. Um, Just how much you like watch this bird, honestly. Yeah. On all of his like mannerisms and what he was doing. I feel like that's sort of very cool. Mm-hmm. And just the kind of person who would sit and watch a bird yeah. for that long. <laughs> it's really, there's something interesting about that. Does it connect in any way to the poem we just read? Do you feel despair when looking at nature in this version? No, in this version, I sort of just feel like calm. It's sort of cute in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely happier, I guess, mm-hmm. than the other one. That makes sense to me. So maybe we can't make a full, it's, it seems like every time you find a Dickinson poem where you can make a conclusion, you find another one where you have to make the opposite conclusion. So yeah. it's maybe not that nature is depressing, but I think we can still connect with that idea of nature as being interesting at the very least. Yeah. What are you thinking about, Maddie? Like I just, uh, I do agree. Like it, it kind of, 
her poems kind of go over a lot of different emotions. Yeah. So again, like, I think it's like a, like, it depends on like where she is in her life too, you know? So like in the winter, maybe it's like a very bad winter. She might feel like really depressed, but then maybe I'm going to assume this might be during spring or summer. Um, it's just a, it's just a happy, calm time. That so. makes sense. That makes sense to me that that might be when a bird is most likely to walk around and drink from the grass and see beetles. Like there's a lot of natural activity as opposed to the sort of blankness of that winter poem. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Bailey, any thoughts? And then we'll move on to your question. I agree with Maddie, just that I think there's not necessarily one feeling towards anything that at a certain time, depending on what day it is, she might feel she might be in love with nature and then the next day she might hate it. <laughs> I think that's represented in her poems. That makes sense, right? And that's kind of how I think a lot of us are, right? As we, as we move through the seasons. Okay, great. So we've still got plenty of time. Uh, Bailey, let's talk a little bit about your question. So you wanted to talk about maybe religious identity. So say a little bit more about what you're interested in. Yeah, so I know Dickinson wasn't, she had like a conflicting relationship with religion. Like I know her family was religious, but she, and she wasn't necessarily not religious, but she was more on her own with it. Like she had her own ideas about religion as opposed to like an organized religion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so like in her poems, she'll talk about like God or religion, but she's not very specific about like what God or like what religion or, and then she talks about death. And she like hints that there could be an afterlife, but she's not sure about it. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to lump your question in with some <laughs> thoughts about death and the death poems. Uh, because I think that is one of the things that we most know about um, Dickinson is her sort of poems thinking about death. And I think you're right, Bailey, there is a bit of a doubt about an afterlife. And that's a really important aspect of of especially like Protestant Christianity in the family that she was sort of from. Uh, so do you have a poem in particular that you're thinking of that maybe illustrates this religious identity or afterlife questions? I remember there was a poem where she like mentioned if there was like an afterlife, but I can't find it. Oh boy. Okay, anybody wanna take a stab? Do you wanna do uh, I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died? I think that's a good one. It's the last one. Or if I could remember the one about the grave <laughs> that we talked about already earlier. Um, let's do, oh, um, let's do number 216 on 1475. I think this is the one you were talking about earlier, um, whoever was talking about it earlier. Yes. Okay. Does somebody want to read it? I did one. I can read it if you want me to. Okay, go ahead, Heather. The sentences are going to be really, really hard, though. <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah, let's decide. <laughs> we don't care. Um, and it does stop after the, there's two versions there, but let's just read the first version. Okay. Safe in their alabaster chambers, untouched by morning and untouched by noon, sleep the meek members of the resurrection, rafter of satin and roof of stone. Light laughs the breeze in her castle above them, babbles the bee in a stolid ear, pipe the sweet birds in an ignorant cadence. Ah, uh, what sagacity perished here? Sagacity, wisdom, sage, the sages, right? 
Yeah. Okay. So what does this tell us that she thinks that the afterlife is like? What is it like when you die? Where do you go when you die? Somewhere up above, it seems like. It seems okay. like she's talking about heaven just a little bit, just because it says uh, in her castle above them. Mm, the breeze is in the castle above them. Uh. I know, right? That's the hard part about sentences. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if the breeze is above them, where are they? They're underground. Yeah, yeah. they're just there. Yeah. So the, the members of the resurrection, again, might suggest like, Christians, right? The member, the people who are going to be resurrected on the last day or the people who will go to heaven eventually, right now, they're under the ground and the breeze is above them and the bee is above them and the birds are of them and their wisdom has perished. Ooh, boy. Okay, so taking that together, <laughs> what do you think she means to say about the afterlife uh, or religion maybe? Are you enjoying my dog sounds? I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> they're dead, right? They're dead. They're underground. They're dead. And maybe there is no resurrection. And maybe there is no other life. You're just untouched. Untouched by morning. Untouched by noon. Sleeping. That's it. Does that surprise you to hear her say that? Or to hear anyone say that? Maybe back in her time, yeah. Because... Yeah. Most people definitely weren't questioning anything like that. Yeah. I mean, Whitman like, was suggesting that when you die, you turn to grass. Oh. So maybe that's different. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, let's take a look at one more. Let's do, I've heard a fly buzz when I died. Because I think that's a good one uh, for thinking about what happens when you die. Uh, all right, so I'll read it this time. So I'm on page 1485, number 465. Um, I heard a fly buzz when I died. The stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm. The eyes around had wrung them dry and breaths were gathering firm for that last onset when the king be witnessed in the room. I willed my keepsakes, signed away what portion of me be assignable. And then it was there interposed a fly with blue uncertain stumbling buzz between the light and me. And when the windows failed, and then I could not see. All right. So it's clearly a scene of people waiting for a person to die. And that dying person is the speaker of the poem telling us what happened. So what happened when they died? Died. <laughs> they died. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. died. Uh, I mean, she sort of says that she can't see anything. She was like, um, when she says the windows failed, she's talking about like her eyes, at least yeah. in my and, yeah you know her eyes closed and then she was dead yeah she was doing like all the stuff around her what would they think was happening what did they think was going to happen at death when the king be witnessed in the room what do you think that line means so this is going to be a complete guess it, it yeah. sort of sounds yeah. like she's talking about god yeah what makes you think so? Um, just for my past knowledge in Christianity, don't they like call him the king sometimes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're expecting God or or maybe Christ the <laughs> king 
to come into the room as the person dies and kind of take them away? Does that sound right to you or sound like an expectation you've had or heard? Yeah. yeah and so what do you think it means that it's a fly instead? Like it's supposed to be like God, but it's a fly. <laughs> what, what do you think about that? It could have been a butterfly. It could have been like a dandelion thing floating in the air, but it's a fly. What do you think about that? Why a fly? Flies are usually around when people are dead. Ooh, on the dead body? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like a harbinger of rot. Yeah. Oh, that's gross, Heather. That's <laughs> gross. I talked about this a lot in like my English class and I'm pretty sure we said that before. That makes sense to me, right? Any other ideas? Maybe Bailey, are you thinking about something? I mean, I think a fly is like the exact opposite of God mm. and that yeah. like God is supposed to be this like big, great thing. And then a fly is just something you brush off. It's really annoying. It's small. So to be the exact off, like opposite of what was expected, mm -hmm. I think is the point she was making. Yeah, that maybe you guys have spent a lot of time thinking about the like glory of death, but guess what? It's just flies. It's just darkness and flies. <laughs> That's all we can expect. Uh, what are you thinking about, Maddie, with this poem? This one's an interesting one, I guess. Yeah. I, I would have to agree um, if like maybe just to like, again, the whole glory thing we expect, but in reality, death is just a natural uh, yeah. event. Yeah, and interesting that then it's like a like a, an insect, a, na a, a representative of nature comes in and says like, this is the end of your life. It's a buzzing of a fly. Yeah. And then maybe again, that, that smallness of life. Uh, I think you're onto something that it's so much smaller than God, right? It's so much smaller than anything else. And maybe that's all that there is, is like this, this smallness. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts about her kind of, um, about religion? We've talked about death a little bit and afterlife a little bit, but maybe we have one more second to talk about any other sense of religion or God? Gosh, my dogs are really upset. It must be mail time. I don't remember. Hey, oh, sorry, go ahead. Ooh, I got one if you don't. Go ahead, tell me who was talking. I think I might have interrupted someone, but I'm not sure. <laughs> you can totally get this, okay? Go for it. Um, I don't, oh, it's the, is it that one? Yeah, it's the one on 1479, like uh, 324. Okay. Um, ah, yes. Some keep the Sabbath from going to church. I think it's, I'm, I might be reading it wrong, I but I feel like it's like, she's saying that like, people go to the church for faith and for God, but you don't have to go to church. You don't have to be like, so religious like how they say to yeah. be faithful and have a relationship with God and get to heaven it's like a personal intimate thing with God yeah I keep it staying at home looking at the stuff around me right looking at the world looking at the birds 
Um, yeah, all of those things she kind of does instead of that organized church, which reminds me of transcendentalism, which reminds me of the, the, the fly and that nature interposing. I can see a lot of those. I was going to talk about on 1481, number 338. Um, I know that he exists somewhere in silence. He has hid his rare life from our gross eyes. Like, I, I know that God exists, but he is not here with me right? He's not, he's not here doing this thing. Uh, we can talk more about that at some other time. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think you're onto something with that question of there's a, there's a, a struggling with religious identity that, um, that comes in some different waves. And sometimes it is uh, something that she's interested in, like the slant of light being like a cathedral. And sometimes it's something that she wants to kind of put away, right? And, and, and not really pay attention to. So I think there's a lot to explore there if there were more time. Okay, so let's wrap up our conversation today. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close? Any favorite poem that we didn't discuss? We didn't talk about Wild Nights, which I always like to talk about because it's a sexy poem. Is Wild Nights in today's reading? I believe so. Okay, well, I'm gonna make them talk about it on Wednesday, get psyched. <laughs> anything else that's interesting to you? I thought poem 288 was really cute. It's yeah, like, which one's that? Like a frog. It's the oh. on nobody. Oh, it says like a frog. I thought it was really cute. Yes, that's a nice one that people talk about, about uh, her attitudes towards publication, mm -hmm. right? That if I were a celebrity, if I published, I would just be a frog saying my name all day. And I'm much more happy to be anonymous and just be myself. Um, and, you know, we can talk about that <laughs> later this week too. <laughs> Okay, good. So what kind of recommendations do you have? I recommended, of course, Dickinson on Apple Plus. There's also one on Netflix that has some famous people in it, but it's not very good. And I didn't finish it. And I don't, I'm not even going to tell you what it was called. Um, do you have anything you think people should read or watch or listen to? Other, maybe other poets who are great things about nature? Did you read any websites that you thought were super cool? Or nah? Sounds like nah. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, that's it for today. Thank you all so much for being a part of the uh, podcast. We really appreciate it. And thanks for listening.